Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome. My name is Michael Johnston, and this is another episode of New Books in Sociology, a channel on the New Books Network. Today, I have Dr. Wendy Simons with me. Uh, She is a professor of sociology, as well as a professor of gerontology and director of graduate studies in gerontology at Georgia State University. Dr. Simon also teaches courses in the specialty area of gender and sexuality and family, health, and life course. Today, we will be talking about Dr. Simon's book, Hospital Land in USA, Sociological Adventures and Medicalization, which was published by Rutledge in 2017. Thank you, Wendy, for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really glad to be here. Excellent. So um, to start, what what brought you to this topic, um, medicine, medical, hospital land? You know, what brought you to this area of research? So most of my career, I've been doing research that focuses on medical workers. Um, I wrote about mostly reproductive health. And then this book started because of my friendship with Chet Meeks, who was also a sociologist and who was my colleague and friend. Chet died of colon cancer in 2008. He moved to Atlanta a couple of years before to take a job in my department. And um, soon after he got here, within, I think, two months, he was diagnosed with stage four cancer. He had had a previous experience with um, colon cancer, but it was removed and he thought he was done with it. And so after he was diagnosed, we spent a lot of time together and eventually I ended up going with him to most of his chemotherapy appointments and then he would come home and um, convalesce at my house. So he became very close with my family and also with a, with a number of other colleagues in our department. And we really um, did a lot to help him through that period of his life. Um, and so one day I was with Chet at the hospital and I 
Oh, you know what it was? He he switched during the middle of his treatment. He switched doctors and we were going to this new hospital that had signs that just really were amazing. On every floor of the hospital, there was a different theme. So the theme might be hope or courage or caring or compassion. And so these words would be really large everywhere like they were on on the floors on the elevators on the ceiling so you might have a sign saying you know check out and it would have caring above it and another really kind of flowy italicized sort of font um and so i brought my camera one day because i wanted to take pictures of the signs but then i started taking pictures of chet and i took one when we were sitting in the waiting room and he kind of smiled at me. And then I took one when he was getting his blood pressure taken and he made like a wry face. And so he seemed to be enjoying it and I love taking photographs. So I kept doing it and I did it for the whole day. And so by the end of the day, I, I just felt like, wow, that was really a different experience for me anyway. So I sent him an email and I wrote about how different it felt to me and how I felt like both of us felt a sense of power, even though we really didn't have any. But I felt like we 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 kind of felt a sense of power over the experience that we hadn't felt before. And um, I asked him if he thought we might write something about his experience together. And he liked the idea of it very much. And we did, I think, four interviews that I taped. And then when he died, I had no idea what I would do or if I would do anything with the interviews. And it took me a few months to, to transcribe them. And then I printed them up and put them in a folder with printouts of Chet's blog that he kept for the whole two years that he was here or the um, almost two years that he was going through cancer treatments and also emails between us and other people who were writing to me about Chet. And I just put all that in a folder and then I would revisit it periodically and, and think about it and then put it back away because it really felt for a long time, just too painful. So I did some other smaller kinds of things that I can't even remember what they were now, but I kept coming back to it. And also I kept going into what I call in the book hospital land in new ways. And I always would bring my camera because of how much it had helped me when I was together with Chet. Um, and so I think also that I should say that there's another kind of origin story to this book, which is that I had been collecting medical signs before I went with Chet. Beginning in 2001 was the first time that I took a medical sign and I had gone with my collaborator, Barbara Katz Rothman, to Bellevue where we were supposed to be doing a focus group interview with medical residents in um, OBGYN. And we got there and were taken to this empty room where we sat down to wait for them. And the time of the interview came and went. They didn't come. After a while, we went out and checked with a receptionist and she was sort of puzzled by it. She was the one who had scheduled it for us. And she said, well, they got let out early and I think they just forgot. So after waiting for like 45 minutes an hour, I felt like we were sort of we sort of deserved something and hanging in that room was a sign 
that was about, well, I have it, I think, marked here. It's called Bellevue Hospital Center Can't Fail to Satisfy. And it has cartoon figures of doctors and nurses and instructions on how to speak to patients and their families in a way that will be satisfactory. And so I'll just give you an example. The first one shows this little tiny cartoon doctor with outstretched arms and a and he's saying, hello, my name is dot, dot, dot. I am your nurse aide, etc. today. I will be with you until, and then in parentheses, it has 11 p.m. So you know not to always say 11 p.m. I will be checking your blood pressure, helping you to walk, etc. And then underneath it says, explaining, introducing yourself, explaining what you are going to do and what the patient slash family can expect establishes trust and confidence. Patient slash family may expect other than what happens, and this is primary source of dissatisfaction. Then in capital letters, this simple phrasing has tremendous impact on satisfaction. And if you think I mispronounced tremendous, I didn't. That's how it's spelled, tremendous. And so the sign goes on, but I took it and I put it in a file folder. And now I have a file folder, which has, I think, around 10 or so ads that, well, I shouldn't call them ads, but they are ads for the hospital signs that I have liberated from hospital settings when I'm left waiting too long. And it doesn't seem like it'll be any great loss to take it. So um, I feel like that is also a beginning of this project because I was really interested in the graphic representation of medical culture. And so once I started thinking about Chet's story and the photographs and the more photographs that I had taken going into hospital land on my own and also accompanying my parents, I wanted to find a way to kind of combine all of this together. And so I feel like what what Chet's experience, which I thought at first would be the whole thing I would write about, I kind of envisioned like a biographical experience book about Chet became more of an analysis of medicalized culture that uses Chet's experience as a starting point. Yeah. One of the things that um, I found uh, most fascinating about about this book is the battery of methods that you use to used to research this hospital land, not only using raw stories of patients in the hospital, uh, I believe it was Chet, as well as uh, your, your, was it your father who was also um, part of this father, book? Yeah, my father, um, after Chet died, it wasn't too much longer till um, my father had a stroke. And it was, well, you know, let me rephrase that. Several years later, my father had a stroke and then he lived for almost two years after his stroke. And in my view, he should have probably died when he had the stroke. So that was another impetus that really made me want to kind of look at this, this experience of being medicalized across the life course and also to think about like the ways in which we die, you know, and how how much this is not the way that most of us want to die. We don't really want to die medicalized deaths where we have a lot of futile treatment and, and suffering and, or loss of our capabilities. Um, So much so in my father's case that he really was not like himself. He was like a toddlerized version of himself. Um, so that was a motivating factor. I feel like I was so angry about his experience that kind of renewed 
my um, all the emotions that I had felt when I had gone through chemotherapy with Chet. And I felt like I could pull this together and also look at cultural representations of medicalization too. So I, I feel like the book is part um, autobiographical, it's part ethnographic, and it's part discourse analysis. Yes, and that's uh, the third piece that I was going to mention, which is the symbolic meaning that is associated with the uh, with the signs that are put up and are are representative of the impersonal rationalization, the rationalization of the hospital, creating pattern behavior with that, while also depersonalizing clients from their patients, which uh, excuse me, doctors and nurses from their patients, which you also um, mentioned in there about how you normally wouldn't use the word patients, but in this case, patients is a, is a proper, uh, proper term to use throughout this book. So, so what is this hospital land? Is it a, um, is it a microcosm of the larger world? Is it something that's set apart from the world? What do you see hospital land as being? Well, In the book, I use the term hospital land to refer to medicalized environments in general. So all medical facilities, outpatient centers, therapy centers, imaging centers, residential care facilities, doctor's offices, clinics, rehab centers, nursing homes, and some some hospices. Hospital land, though, is more than just physical space. I think it involves also the activities that we do when we when we are trying to arrange going there and getting there and being there. And I feel like it spills out of its institutions into our lives in in so many ways in terms of just like medical propaganda that never stops. You know, you turn on the television, you see medical ads, you go, especially on trips, I notice in airports and subway stations have a lot of medical medical ads. And then um, one of the things that I also write about in the book is medical mail, which um I think if you're if you're not old enough to get it, you will be one day, and it kind of adjusts as you age. Um, and I feel like once you start looking for evidence of of hospital land, you will never stop finding it. And that's really how it was for me. I also use the term hospital land. Um, ironically, to kind of conjure up a warped amusement park, because I feel like in so many ways, that's what it what it is like. Um, but it's not frivolous, right? I mean, you'll find very little um, frivolity in hospital land that isn't false or infantilizing. And I do talk about the ways that a lot of the signs that you see are very infantilizing. Um And then medicalization is the other definition that I use in the book. So it's not really too theoretically difficult to read. Um, But so I brought in Peter Conrad's definition of medicalization as, quote, a process by which non-medical problems become defined and treated as medical problems. I broaden it out and define medicalization as the dynamic set of processes by which medical authorities, institutions, and ideologies come to organize and reorganize, define and redefine, structure and restructure our everyday experiences, culture, and social life. 
So to be medicalized means to submit to medical authorities and also to understand our bodies, our minds, ourselves through medical lenses. And I think we all do this in so many ways and we're encouraged to do it because our culture thinks this way. I mean, I feel like this is really one of the dominant discourses in our culture. And then as a result of that, we... um uh, maybe in some ways it's become a medical industrial complex. Uh, it's the way that I see this, and, and please let me know if I'm wrong, but medicine is becoming a primary part of everyday life and being less about the person and more about profit that is associated with medicine, um, medicine that is uh, done through prescription, but also um, done through medicalizing uh, almost any problem that a person, any ailment that a person might have. Totally, totally. And I think also that medical industrial complex refers to the connections between hospital land and other institutions like the government and the military and in this country, capitalism. So yeah, I think the medical industrial complex makes sense as well as it's like another way of saying hospital land. And in your book, uh, and this is a good time to get into the stories because the stories, the stories, um, I, I think is is one of the most important parts of this book. It, it really brings the story, it brings the book to life through the stories that are told about Chet, uh, as well as others and the experiences that you had while uh, attending the hospital. Uh, a couple different types that you that you mentioned here: are childhood adventures, adventures with your sister nighttime adventures and adventures with the camera could could you tell me about uh, this the significance of these stories and how you use them to make sense of everyday life well i think as sociologists at least as qualitative researchers we focus on stories right and i feel like stories can get across theoretical concepts or or kind of larger ideas in ways that um resonate with people a lot. And that's one of the things that has been most pleasing to me about this book is how much people say it resonates with them. If, if my experience aren't like theirs, then it encourages them to think about their own experiences. And I think it's very hard to not have these kinds of stories. We just don't really think about them too much. I think a lot of times we maybe even try to put them out of our, out of our minds. And um, so yeah, I think the book is full of stories. So there are stories that Chet's, Chet tells because I quote from his his blog. And then there's me telling Chet's overall story. And then there are stories I tell about my own adventures or what I call an alternative medical history. Because I think so often we think about just like, oh, well, you know, I had an eye exam and I got new glasses. We don't think about the part of what it feels like to be in a dark room with a man you don't know, you know, like the whole, all the aspects, the emotional aspects or the experiential aspects of it that really aren't part of what we call our medical history. So I tell a lot of those. And I really had to sift through them because, of course, there are a lot more ones than the ones that are in the book. So I tried to pick ones that would illustrate the kinds of themes that I feel like are most prevalent there. You know, how tedious it is, how disorienting it is, how sometimes even 
you know, we can't trust the memories that we have there because could that really have happened? Um, strange things happen in the night and strange things happen when we're drugged and strange thing ha- strange things happen when we watch people who we love go through really hard medical experiences and we don't have any power over it. So I kind of wanted to, to show the range of a variety of different experiences in the chapter that comes after the one that focuses on Chet. And I also wanted to kind of lighten it a bit. I wanted the book to not just be hard and um, traumatic kinds of recounts of bad hospital and experiences because it is so much more than that. Um, and so then there are also the stories that I analyze in the in the chapter that I have that's about cultural representations. Um, so I look at stories in actual books that tell stories that are memoirs um, by hospital land workers or by people who themselves have spent time there. So sufferers or accompanists. And I also look at the kinds of stories that come through the ads that we see everywhere in the mail that we get. What are the stories that, that get told by medical ads? And this is something that um, I've, since the book I've done in my, when I teach qualitative methods is I find a bunch of medical ads and, and put them up around the room and, and, and we do various kinds of, of coding on them to kind of look for what's in there and what we see in these ads. And so much of it is really about um, what I call a disease disaster narrative where um, we think about you know, think about any kind of disease, disaster movie you might have seen. Contagion's my favorite one. And, and I'm really saying favorite in, in scare quotes because I don't like this genre. I don't like um, the kind of total chaos that always seems to ensue. Um, so I write about the tropes that go on in this, you know, um, disease, disaster narrative. Um and the book came out in 2017, right? And then I was doing talks on it for several years after um, my last talks that I gave. I think I told you this before the interview started were um, in February, 2020. So, we were just on the brink of being part of a pandemic, right? It was coming our way. And a lot of the kinds of tropes that I write about in the book were already happening, like medicine and um, government were conflicting. All kinds of stories were going around about what it was. Xenophobia and racism had already gotten ramped up by by the fear of this, you know, invader from without. Um, it's very strange, I feel like, to have have written about this as a trope and then have to have to live through it. Right. We're still living through it um, afterwards. Uh, it's just weird. When I went on that trip to give those talks, I also went to the Mutter Museum in Philadelphia and saw uh, an exhibit about the plague. And I just thought, wow, are we on the verge of something like this that will be in an exhibit one day? No doubt, right, if our species survives. Um, and then even the insincerity of uh, NFL and NBA and other entertainment industries drawing on draw, drawing from COVID-19 to, uh, to, to help you know, pad their stats. That that was quite interesting. And I think that adds to uh, this uh, medical industrial complex that you mentioned earlier. 
Right. I went on a walk the other night and the only vehicles I saw were Amazon delivery vans. And I thought, this is just like a disease disaster movie. Like this is, this is where we are now. It's very strange. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Now, I mentioned the der- how derogatory the concept patient can be. However, um, the first wave feminist movement pointed out that using the concept of patient can be offensive, but... In, in your book, you say that it's intentional to use patient. You want that offense to be loudly um, presented based on the experiences uh, that um, I think that you want that to be loudly um, given given the experience that you had while at the hospital, but uh, also with some of these different signs that, that you saw. Now, I guess, where did this where did this offensiveness of the concept patient come from? And then and then what is your strategy or what is your reason? I guess maybe it wasn't even strategy, but reason for using such a concept as patient in your book. Well, I mainly use it because that's a term that's used when you're there, right? No one gets called a client unless they're going to a feminist clinic, right? And client is also a little bit not, it's not the most satisfying word. So the root, I feel like the root of, The discontent with patient was, I think, the hierarchical relationship that it conveys. It's rooted in the Latin for suffering or enduring or waiting, right? And to me, I feel like this is pretty apt in hospital land. I want to say that also client, which is was was picked up, I think, because it seemed more neutral and less hierarchical. Um, also has dissatisfying etymological roots in the Latin for hear or obey, and also in denotes a protected status. So it, there's a little bit of it there too. I mean, it sounds like a business term, right? I mean, I'm not to- years later, I feel like I don't know what other term I'd suggest, but client, eh, I use patient because that's that's the common phrasing there. And I feel like it really does um, encompass what it's like to be in hospital land while you're waiting and suffering. Yes. And I can see that power dynamics associated with both client and also with patient and, and this unequal power between a doctor and a nurse and the, and the client or patient. But, uh, I think something that rang true throughout your book is the, some of the experiences of disembodiment that might take place while at the hospital and the objectification of the person, objectification of the person removing the body from 
from them from their personhood right and we consent to it right i mean that's one of the things that i think is most ironic is that in most other cases where you have your consciousness you know messed with you aren't really capable of consent and here we consent before we're drugged to being drugged and being um intervened with in a wide variety of ways you know cut open cut apart um etc or even the i think there's an age-old sociological study um that was uh published but uh, about you know the gynec- the dramaturgical experience that took place in the gynecological exam room and the and integrated as a professional scene by having the drape over the uh, between the upper body and lower body to make it a professional experience the same could be true um in terms of a, a male physical and the expectation for the man to turn his head and cough, well, is it more about not facing the person who is getting ready to carry out these actions, or is it medically, or is it medically tied? And I think the turning of the head would be more to depersonalize that experience so that the relationship can maintain professionalism. Exactly. There's a lot of depersonalization in the name of professionalization in hospital land for sure. So you also point out that uh, healthcare uh, is not what is being necessarily provided by hospitals, rather that it's services that are being carried out. How so? How so? so, yeah, I really got this from my mentor, Barbara Katz Rothman, who pointed out to me that the term healthcare rare, rare, rarely like applies because so often it's not healthy and so often it's not caring. And so instead, I try to talk about the provision of medical services And I'm not trying to say that that means that you never get healthful care, but I don't think that is the norm. That is not what medicine is organized around. And then just uh, probably to, uh, you know, to give, uh, to, to, to give um, time and, and conversation where, where it is due in this book and where our conversation began. I want to close out with the, with this blog that Chet wrote, um, and about how he was placed in a, in a medical category, uh, him not only being the one placed in a medical category, your father, I think, also would have been considered to be placed in a medical category. Um, what does that mean? Well, I think it's a, con- it's, a con- it's a combination of diagnosis and prognosis, right? Um, in, in the case that I write about where Chet complained about the category he was placed in, he felt that he had been deemed a lost cause by his doctor. And so this is, I'll read you what he wrote about it. This is from November 3rd, 2006. He blogged, I want to ask my doctor a bunch of questions, mostly because I can tell that he doesn't like it when I ask questions. I do not like my current oncologist that much. He talks too much, doesn't listen well. And I can tell already that he has put me in a medical category and isn't doing a lot of active thinking about my disease. I want a doctor who goes to bed at night and wakes up in the morning thinking about colon cancer. And so a few months after he wrote this, his doctor, whom I call Dr. Penultimate or Dr. P in the book, told Chet that a PET scan showed that he was cancer free. And Chet was so excited about this. But he also resented that Dr. P seemed to be taking credit for this success that turned out to not really be a success. He felt like it was his body that had done all the work of dealing with the chemo drugs. And in any case, it really did get his hopes up. And um, 
it was it was really a fake kind of cancer freeness. And this medical category uh, that Chet talks about it is I think something that that bothered him, or at least that's the sense that I that I got from it, um, particularly because. You know, he wanted the the doctor to be a professional, somebody who wakes up and goes to sleep and thinks about it. Since after all, I think throughout the whole process, Chet also became a professional of his cancer. He spent uh, hours on end researching the cancer that he had, almost knowing um, just as much, if not more, because he would bring up uh, state-of-the-art practices and asking the doctor if those would be fitting for his cancer. Is that accurate? Yeah, and I think that Chet was really in a conflicted position. And at first, I feel like when I was thinking about it to write about it, I thought for a while that Chet was just too compliant sometimes, you know, and too nice about how he felt. I remember once after several months of just waiting for him, I asked if I could go with him to the exam room and he let me come. And I remember you know, the nurse greeted him, how are you doing, Mr. Meeks? And he's like, oh, I'm doing good. And he was not doing good. And then the doctor came in and this was who I, the doctor I called Dr. Last. And he said, how are you doing, Mr. Meeks? And he said, oh, I'm doing all right. And I was just sitting there thinking, no, you're not. You know, I felt like he was minimizing how shitty all the drugs were making him feel. And then I felt like after further reflection that he was doing this to sort of present the willingness to get the whatever was coming next to engage in the fight you know he was really into the fight of it and I really dislike these kinds of militaristic metaphors for really anything it's hard to get away from them they're so common in our culture Um, but he wanted to do whatever he was going to do to fight to win Um, And so he wanted to present himself, I think, as compliant so that he could continue with the treatments. Um, And he did really continue with the treatments almost till the end of his life, really. He decided to stop chemo just a few weeks before he died. And um, I think he just couldn't, he, he got where he was so worn down. I remember that um, having a conversation with him where he, because he at one point designated me as the point person for people who had questions to call and ask about his condition and his treatment. And I said, well, what do you want me to tell them? Like, do you want me to give them all the details? And he's like, well, I don't know. I don't want people to think that I've um, given up and stopped fighting. And I said to him, you know, at some point I feel like you have to stop seeing this as giving up. It's giving in, right? There's nothing you can do about it. You don't have the power to fight. Um, But yeah, I think that he was willing to try anything. And it was really his mother who told him she wanted him to stop the treatment that gave him permission, I think, to finally just say, okay, enough. Yeah, so a consequence that I'm that I'm hearing that may be associated with being put into a, a medical category is the potential of of having doctors, having medical staff just give up on you. Um, however, the alternative is to is to resist such medical category, which um, depending on on you know whether it's fighting the good fight may may also not be the the greatest of options either as a result of putting oneself through uh, a series of procedures that aren't aren't the kind aren't the aren't most kind on the body. 
Right. And I think you don't always know, I think in a lot of cases with this sort of treatment, you don't know whether it's going to help or how bad the treatment itself will be before you start. And, you know, Chet had hope, but obviously he was also fed hope that, in my view, was false hope. And I think that's a very common aspect of medical treatment because for so many medical practitioners, death is a failure to them. Not saving someone is a failure to them. And I feel like it's the great doctors who really look at this critically and recognize that that's not always possible and that can't always be the goal. Yeah, you know, I, I wonder I wonder where hospice comes into this because I think that was the maybe intent of, of hospice emerging to be able to, for it, to allow a person to die with dignity. Right. And that's where I see it as most active in in hospice and also in the palliative care specialty. And I feel like one of the things that we really need is for palliative care to be integrated much more effectively with the other specializations that will deal with other specializations of medical practitioners who deal with people when they're facing end of life issues. I feel like Right now, the way things work, people don't get to hospice till very close to the end. The average amount of time that people spend on hospice is three weeks. And you can be certified, you're supposed to be certified, medically certified, that you're going to die within six months. Um, And that can be extended, but three weeks is a lot shorter than six months. So that means it takes a long time for that to ever get on the table. Chet was. um, on on hospice, Chet was put on hospice when he stopped his chemotherapy. And like I said, you know, he, he died within a few weeks and the hospice services had just begun. Like, I don't even know if a visit had been made aside from the pre-visit. And then just the undoubtedly costs that are associated with, with hospice, making it inaccessible for some and requiring some to uh, others to wait until the v- final minutes, the final days of uh, of a person uh, leading up to their uh, death, because otherwise it would otherwise it would be impo- Otherwise it would be a taxing. It'd be burdensome on potentially the family or others to to make up for that cost. Right, and if if there aren't that many in per in person hospice centers, so most of the care is expected to be done by family members or friends at home. Not everybody can really set that up in their in their lives. So a lot of people I feel like are under under serviced, underserved. A lot of people are underserved. Well this was uh, a great joy to you know a great opportunity to be able to read uh, this book and to be able to talk with you more about it to get greater insight in the stories that were told by Chet and by your father and the experiences that you had while attending the hospital um, for both their care but also for other experiences that you had in the hospital for your profession uh, right going and, and meeting with uh, or trying to meet with nurses I guess I should say um, in training but uh, um, one final question that I have that I'm starting to know is where's your research going now? This was 2017, but where do you, is this research done and over with, or do you see it still having um, open doors to continue the research on still yet today? 
Well, my research has really moved in a new direction right now. I've been doing some research on advice to older adults about sexuality. Um, and this ties in with previous work that I've done. I co-edited a sexuality reader um, that called um, Sex Matters. And as I've moved more and more of my academic life into gerontology, I'm I'm interested in, in kind of exploring the other end of life. Previously, I was looking at right reproductive issues. So um, I've kind of shifted focus, but not exactly. Um, I had some fantasy after the book came out that I would expand it and like be like hospital land world, but that's not happening in a pandemic, right? Um, but I remain interested and and I continue to collect signs, mostly by photographing them and um, update my talks on hospital land so that they're current with the all the new horrors that have been happening in the past few years. So I remain interested for sure, but um, yeah, I'm doing something a little different now. You beat me to the question. You know, I was going to ask you if you're, if you're still taking signs, but uh, you're, you're taking the pictures of these signs because there's plenty of information uh, out there in terms of signage and, and uh, ads and, and mail, even for adult sex education resources, commercials. I, all of a sudden I'm getting that in my head of the commercials that are out there and, and it's rich. All you have to do is turn the television on and there's probably something about Cialis. <laughs> right. I mean, we all know kind of what those ads look like and how they stress this notion that to age healthfully means that you will be sexual your whole life. And if you, if you have issues with conventional heteronormative penile penetrative sex, then here's a drug for you. Yeah. Well, this is going to be a great book once it's written, and I, and I hope that I can uh, invite. I hope that I that you will accept my invite to be on the show again for your next book. Thank you so much. Excellent. Again, this has been another episode of New Books in Sociology. I am Michael Johnston, your host, and thank you again, Wendy, for joining us today. Thank you, Michael. It's been a pleasure.